welcome to today's Routing Table podcast. My name is Rick and I'm here with my co-host Melchior. Hey Melchior. Hey Rick. Today we're going to talk about a very interesting topic and our guest today is Wojciech Kozlowski, a postdoctorate researcher at TU Delft uh, and is a co-chair of the IRTF Quantum Internet Research Group. Hey Wojciech. Uh, hi Melker and Rick. It's very nice that you could join us and we have a lot of questions uh, on the topic of quantum technology. But uh, before we dive into uh, the known and the unknown stuff about it, could you, could you shortly introduce yourself to the listeners, what, what it is you do and, uh, and who you are? Uh, yes, of course. So as was already mentioned, I am a postdoctoral researcher at the TU Delft. I am part of the Research Institute QTEC, uh, which is a mission-driven research institute, which is a collaboration between the Delft University of Technology and the Netherlands Organization for Applied Scientific Research, TNO. And uh, I research uh, quantum network uh, architecture, both the network architecture itself and the software architecture. Uh, and I work on it as part of the Quantum Internet Alliance, which is a European project funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program. And yeah, as, uh, as I mentioned, I'm co-chair of the IRTF, where we try to engage uh, people from outside of just the research community in our work. That's also the reason why we basically invited you, right, to uh, uh, to, to take the the whole quantum technology stuff and the stuff that's working that you're working on on the networking side, uh, and and see what how we can apply that and how we can uh, bring more people to the table. Sounds great. So the topic is quantum, and uh, we had a little bit of emails going back and forth about uh, about the, about the topic, um, and and I think I'm I'm quite new to the to the subject as a whole. So and and I think I'm I'm uh, I'm there with with our listeners as well. So could you just briefly, <laughs> if that's possible, explain uh, what what are we talking about? Some terminology and and yeah, what it is that you do with quantum. Uh, yeah, so basic introduction. Uh, I'll, the, the very basic uh, people already probably hear about quantum computing, uh, given that it's quite a hot topic in the media. So I'll start probably with the basics of that, as that relates to my own research. Uh, very fundamentally, we're used to computers that uh, process what we in the research community call classical information. Uh, to us, classical information simply means non-quantum information. And that's the concepts we're used to, the bits, which are zero or one, and the processing of these bits, which are always in a definite, have a definite value. They're either zero or one. The innovation that's brought by quantum computers and that is a fundamental shift at, the very, at this very fundamental level. We no longer, in quantum computers and quantum technology, we no longer operate on bits. We operate on what we call qubits, so quantum bits. Uh, the key difference between uh, quantum bits, qubits, and classical bits is uh, the fact that they can actually exist in as both a zero and one. So they, what we call a superposition of states. And that itself later, and they're subject to the laws of quantum physics. And the combination of these two leads to actually unleash a lot of new computational capabilities, uh, which are the foundation of quantum computing and quantum networking. Uh, so some of these possibilities uh, are the ability to create superpositions of uh, multiple qubits, 
which is used in uh, more complex quantum computational algorithms, uh, as well as another feature of quantum mechanics, which is called entanglement, which is the idea that you can connect two quantum bits, two qubits, and separate them and put them on two physically in physically distinct locations. And by operating on one of them, you actually uh, affect the state of the other qubit, regardless of the distance in between them. And this entanglement is the foundation of the other side of uh, the quantum technology, which is quantum networking. Uh, so as a very basic introduction, that's kind of at the fundamental level, that's it. Is there more I should talk about? Well, it's it's a deep topic as well, and especially if you talk about the the, the whole entanglement thing, uh, it's it's a very interesting one because you're saying that there's no propagation or there's no communication between between the two qubits. Ah, that's a, that's a, that's a very very good point. So, uh, strictly speaking, yes, the effect between the qubits is uh, instantaneous. It's Einstein called it spooky action at a distance, and in fact, it was his argument for why quantum mechanics must be wrong. Uh, well, it turns out, in this case, actually, Einstein was wrong uh, a few times. Uh, and uh, we do actually have this spooky action at a distance. Uh, it's, been, it's actually been proven uh, experimentally uh, up to the limitations of experiments uh, that we do, in fact, get the spooky action at a distance in a way that cannot be explained with theories that do not involve... Uh, this uh, this this weird effect distant effect uh, and by having said that this does not mean that we can now communicate faster than the speed of light because just because because there's another aspect of this entanglement and of these superpositions that I haven't mentioned yet and is the fact that whilst the effect we have on the quantum state, is immediate at the other end, it's random. And you d a priori, when you're performing that action, you don't know what this random outcome will be. But you find out the outcome as soon as you perform it. And for the your remote participants to be able to make something useful out of their end, you have to actually tell them what you measured on your side. So you actually have to send them a classical message anyway. So I need... You do so. It's not faster than the speed of light, you say. So how can it be instantaneous then? So the quantum effect itself is instantaneous. It's the fact that you cannot productively use it faster mm -hmm. than the speed okay. of light. So the limitation here is that you cannot transfer information faster than the speed of light, uh, and you cannot transfer information because, as an example, I'll use I'll use a very basic example to kind of to explain this. So uh, let's take two qubits, and the common case is that when you entangle these two qubits. Uh, what happens is that there, a basic example is that you prepare them in a state where they're either both in the state zero or they're either both in the state one. Uh, so basically, they're in a superposition. So we have this register of two qubits uh, and the register is either zero, zero and it's in a superposition with the register in the state one, one. And it's in the superposition until we measure it. So now we have these two qubits and we send 
one of these qubits to Alice, and we send the other qubit to Bob. So now they both hold one end of the qubit. They both know that their qubit is either a zero or one, but they don't know which of these it is until they measure it. Uh, but the only thing they know is that once they measure it, it's going to have exactly the same value on the other side. Uh, so let's say Alice now measures her qubit and she gets uh, an outcome that her qubit is in the state zero. So what that means is that the register, which was previously in the state zero, zero or one, one is now in a definite state of zero, zero, because in quantum mechanics, measurement affects and changes your state. So we have changed our register from a superposition state to a definite state of zero, zero. And now Alice knows that Bob actually has a definite zero, but Bob does not know that. Bob still thinks, Bob's knowledge of the state is that it still is in a superposition. And if he measures his, he will measure a zero, but he will not know whether he did it before or after Alice did hers. Right. Uh, so to him, it's uh, it's all in this question, in this case, it's about what is the observer's knowledge of the system. And you can build up on this concept and perform more complex algorithms. Uh, but this does require Alice and Bob communicating to coordinate their actions. Mm, very interesting. And I think there's also like a human uh, uh, aspect to it to explain this, right? Something with a cat or something I heard about. Uh, yes. So the, the, the famous experiment of Schrodinger's cat, uh, right. uh, which is basically just the same concept. is the idea that you put a cat in a box and uh, you cruelly put a vial of radioactive uh, of poison uh, in the box and you prepare a radioactive source, which has a 50-50 chance of emitting in the direction of the poison vial and the other 50% chance of emitting in the other direction. If it emits towards the poison vial, it breaks the poison vial and kills the cat. So because the radiation event is a quantum mechanical event, what ends up is until you open the box, the cat is actually simultaneously dead and alive. And only <laughs> when you open the box, do you collapse the wave function into the cat being either dead or alive? Yeah, so that's explaining the superposition versus the definitive state, right? That's, By the way, yeah. do not try this at yeah, home. Right. We don't want to have someone ki killing cats, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, there was never a real cat being killed in this experiment, right? It's, <laughs> well, let's hope so. <laughs> so uh, you just mentioned that uh, you were able to uh, measure over distance. What, what are we talking about in, in numbers? Um, so what's the distance and, and for how long is that state preserved? Uh, that's a very good question. In theory, I'm going to very highlight very strongly. In theory, this this could be infinite distance. There is nothing in the theory of quantum mechanics that says uh, there is a limit. Uh, practically speaking, we do have limits. It's very difficult to maintain this entangled state over a distance. Quantum mechanics is very sensitive to the environment. And so therefore, it's very difficult to isolate quantum mechanical systems sufficiently from their environment that we can achieve long distances. Uh, so practically speaking, what we can achieve is over fiber, people have achieved several hundreds of kilometers, uh, and using satellites, you can achieve distances of more than 1000 kilometers. I believe in China, it was over a thousand kilometers. Well, where did, do, where do we use the, the fiber or the satellite for? Is that to just exchange the verifications of the states? Uh, no, actually you, you've come to, so. I have perhaps not explained the physical implementation uh, very well, so or at all. So let me also explain that th th this is used 
So when we, we have to first create these entangled qubits in one location. We cannot entangle two qubits in two quantum computers if somehow these two qubits have not interacted in some way. So for example, in the satellite example, what actually happens is that the satellite might actually send, might actually create an entangled pair of photons. So each photon is a qubit or represents a logical qubit. And it sends each of these photons to the different nodes. Or on the fiber, what, what happens is that perhaps one end can prepare an entangled pair of states, an entangled pair of qubits, and sends one of the qubits down the fiber to the other node. And now they have a pair of entangled qubits. Or there's more convoluted ways of preparing these entangled qubits where each node prepares an entangled pair. They send one of the qubits down the fiber. These qubits on the fiber meet in the middle. And by having them interact in the middle, they actually entangle the other qubits at the nodes, which the end result of which is that the two nodes have an entangled pair of qubits. So just to summarize what I said is that you need some way to transmit the actual entangled qubit to the other node in order for it to be useful. So, so thousands of kilometers you're saying that the distance is, is capable of? Of course, we then still need to verify it via standard methods. So we're still limited to fiber speeds, I would say, or satellite speeds yes. or latency there. So, yeah, I think the next question would be, uh, as of course we can dive into this very, very deep, but uh, maybe that goes beyond the scope of today's podcast. But what, what are like applications that uh, we can apply this technology to. And then specifically talking about the quantum networking stuff, right? We, I think quantum computing is a different story. Yes. Uh, so from the perspective of applications, uh, well, the, I'll start with the most obvious one because it's already commercialized and people are already building networks for it, is uh, quantum key distribution. Actually, before I explain this, uh, the use cases, let me explain the two feet two particular features of quantum entanglement that leads to useful applications, uh, as that might help uh, in understanding future use cases. So there's two features of entanglement that make it very useful. So, I mean, it's one thing to have spooky action, action, action at a distance, but what's so useful about it? And there's two things. The first thing is kind of what I, what I already kind of explained in that if you've got an entangled pair of qubits, the two qubits are correlated in some way. And the thing that's very useful about these correlations is they're correlated in a way that's simply not possible to achieve without quantum mechanics. So we call these stronger than classical correlations. So a useful feature of entanglement is that we can distribute entanglement to, to end nodes, and now they have a source of correlated information. So practically speaking, it's effectively as if they had a random number generator that always produces the same value the same bit stream on both sides. So that's one useful aspect of uh, entanglement. The other useful aspect of entanglement is the fact that what's actually called in research literature, it's that entanglement is monogamous. Uh, it's the idea that uh, if two uh, parties uh, have a qubit each, which is entangled with the other, they actually, and if it's perfect entanglement, then nobody else in the world can physically actually have access to any quantum information in 
in between those two entangled pair of qubits. Uh, entanglement simply is just not shared, would not, is not able to be shared beyond uh, a certain limit. You know that if you, if you have an entangled pair of qubits, only you have an entangled pair of qubits. So combining these two aspects, we can build applications. You just mentioned the, the quality of the entanglement. Um, maybe it's good to uh, explain that a little bit uh, further as the, from what I've understood is that the, the quality or it matters for which application you can use, use the entangled qubits, uh, uh, but it depends on the, on the quality of the entanglement. In other words, how good is it? Uh, yes, that's a very good point. So as I already actually said earlier in this uh, conversation, it's very difficult to isolate quantum systems from the environment. And that results in deterioration of the quality. Uh, and in my previous explanation, I actually did highlight that to, we do need perfect quality states to have this super utmost highest guarantee. But, and, but we actually, practically speaking, never have perfect quality states in the lab, at least at the moment, because currently we do not have enough resources and we do not have the technological capacity to fault tolerantly error correct our quantum states. The theory exists to fault tolerantly correct these states, but we do not have the capabilities to do that just yet. So practically speaking, we currently uh, operate in a regime which is called uh, NISC, where uh, we do not have perfect states, but we still want to and are capable of executing quantum networking protocols. Uh, and the idea is that in quantum mechanics, uh, the protocols designed for these uh, hardware devices do not assume perfect quality states. Um, we do not actually need perfect quality states. It turns out that you can actually design protocols which uh, get by with imperfectly entangled states. They just have to do a lot of extra verification uh, and which they achieve by means of classically communicating between themselves and doing uh, and some clever tricks at the protocol at the application level. But there is a threshold. So in general, we do not need perfect states. They just need to be good enough. Yeah, I think for QKD it is, what is it? I think b between 70% um, or something. Uh, yes, yeah, so the way we quantify how good a state is, is through a quantity we call fidelity in, mm -hmm. in, in literature. What fidelity actually, in, in, it has a very rigorous mathematical definition, but effectively it comes down to a very simple way to express it, which is, Fidelity is the probability that a quantum state can pass as a different quantum state. So in short, we're basically measuring how close our quantum state that we have is to our desired quantum state. Uh, and yes, for quantum key distribution, it's about it's actually about 80%. So our, our, our state needs to be about 80% as good as our desired quantum state. Uh, which is achievable actually with current technology over uh, several hundred kilometers, uh, for example. Yeah, yeah. Because focusing, because uh, I think currently the most, let's say, practical uh, application is a, a quantum key distribution (QKD). It, it's also a, a commercially available uh, solution, and as you said, it, it in in very simple terms, it acts as uh, the two random number generators on both sides. Um, generating the same number, but 
for those who are not familiar with it, what, what can you do with that? What is the uh, uh, the use case for QKD, for example? Uh, right. So uh, perhaps maybe I'll also, also explain a bit more about quantum key distribution first, because I've only just said that we get a correlated random number at the other end. Mm -hmm. uh, so just to kind of fill in the last last few blanks is now that we have this, so we actually combine these two features that we get this random string at both ends that's identical. We combine it with the fact that entanglement is monogamous. Uh, so we have security at the physical level because we actually now have a guarantee that nobody else uh, has the information, has access to this random bit string. Uh, there is additional post-processing involved uh, that uh, handles the fact that we do not actually have perfect states. So what it does is basically we collect a large chunk of uh, bits, uh, but we will discard some of them uh, because we will use them to verify and eliminate uh, basically eliminate the reduce the probability that an eavesdropper has any information about our uh, bit string or if we or if we conclude that the eavesdropper has too much information we will discard the key and that's how we deal with the imperfect states in quantum key distribution so at the end of the day we have two end nodes both of which uh, have exactly the same secret key uh, what, what do we use it for? So essentially this can be used to secure for all symmetric encryption and decryption. Uh, and currently it's not really clear at the moment to us as to which point we will integrate it in because, because you can use QKD at the physical layer. You can use QKD at the data link layer. You can use QKD for IPsec. You can potentially use QKD for even TLS and even at the application layer. It's currently not clear to us at which point you would like to integrate QKD. Uh, in terms of just network communication, uh, other use cases simply involve distributing uh, keys securely, which nowadays you might want to do with a physical courier uh, and complex infrastructure to make sure that your key is distributed uh, securely and you are not vulnerable to interception, uh, and quantum key distribution could potentially offer a cheaper alternative, a cheaper, more convenient, and more secure alternative to that. One of the, the or the, 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 the way it, it currently is implemented or it, it's available is basically you have uh, uh, two boxes on, uh, or one box on each side, um, but it's always a point-to-point -point, um, connection. Um, whereas in, let's say, a classical networking, we... Uh, we build mesh networks. Um, is that something uh, that is coming? Because the, currently the, the issue, of course, is that with entanglement, you can only entangle Alice and Bob, right? You cannot entangle Alice, Bob, and uh, Charlie. So having a mesh is hard, or how do you see that uh, going forward? Uh, that's a very great question. Uh, so I might give actually quite a... a extensive answer to this. Um, so this is actually a key, this highlights a key modern research challenge we currently have in quantum networking. Uh, as you rightfully pointed out, most QKD implementations currently are point to point. So Alice communicates directly to Bob and, and vice versa. And so therefore, if you want to connect N parties, you need to connect every party to all the other parties. Kind of, it's 
in order to guarantee end-to-end -end security. If you, you can compromise a bit on your security, depending if your situation is acceptable, and currently, with our current technology, what you could do and, uh, is you, could, you put a what we call a trusted repeater node in the middle, in between all of these uh, remote parties, and they communicate via this trusted repeater node. So what actually happens is that we not, the quantum link is in between every end node and this trusted repeater node, and entanglement is only generated between the end node and the trusted repeater node. Uh, and we use that to actually achieve, uh, to generate keys between any pair of end nodes. The problem is in this trusted part of this repeater node. It means we need to trust this central repeater node not to uh, compromise our secret keys. And so therefore your trusted repeater node has to be actually physically secure. Currently, this is how we get past this uh, difficulty of one point to point and distance. So for example, there's actually a 2000 kilometer link in China, uh, but that 2000 kilometer link is not uh, end to end entanglement. It consists of trusted repeater nodes. So the entanglement is generated between pairs of trusted repeater nodes, uh, and which is ultimately used to generate secret keys uh, between two end nodes separated by 2,000 kilometers. Yeah, so you introduced the concept of entanglement swapping there. Uh, almost, uh, yes. <laughs> the, next, uh, the next step, uh, so these trusted repeater nodes do not do uh, what Mel here called entanglement swapping. The next step is actually, we take these trusted repeater nodes and we, we want to eliminate this trusted part. We want them to be just repeater nodes. Uh, and the way we can... So how do we get from creating entanglement in a point-to-point -point fashion to a mesh? And generally, near term, it'll be very difficult to directly transmit qubits long distances. I forgot to actually say why it's difficult. It's not just because of isolation. We cannot amplify our signal. We cannot amplify quantum signals because of a very important limitation in quantum mechanics, which is called the no cloning theorem, which is that we cannot clone we cannot copy unknown quantum data. So we cannot amplify our signal. So it's so our repeater nodes cannot amplify our signal. So we cannot just build ampli quantum amplifiers and call it a day. So what we do instead is we generate entangled qubits between each pair of repeater nodes on the path between the source and the destination. And we perform an entanglement swapping operation. What that does is it takes two entangled pairs, which have, which, uh, so if we have three nodes, Alice on the left, Charlie in the middle, and Bob on the right, Alice and Charlie have an entangled pair of qubits. Charlie and Bob also have an entangled pair of qubits. Now Charlie, who is in the middle and has a qubit from each pair, will perform an entanglement swapping operation, which consumes the entanglement that it has with Alice and Bob, but as a result, Alice and Bob's qubits are now entangled with each other. So you have taken two short distance entangled pairs and made one longer distance entangled pair with it. Uh, and this is what we are striving for. And this is the current, uh, a lot of current research effort in the lab is towards building these repeater nodes that can perform this entanglement swapping operation. Yeah, I think that that's really helpful to add because in the world where 
Rick and I are from and, and, and probably a lot of our listeners, we just put a router in the middle or indeed what we would call a repeater. Basically, you just amplify the the um, uh, the, the the light you re- receive and and you put it on the next fiber um in or with a router you make an electrical signal and and back to optical signal again um but that is fundamentally different of course in um, in quantum so it's 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 very helpful to understand uh, uh, to add that well, it, it does sound like in this whole concept that a repeater could be a network node like a router is, right? That you have a, a network of these repeaters. Is that something that... Uh, yes. So we call them quantum repeaters because that's what the physicists called it in the original paper. But yes, they effectively function as quantum routers. They can function as quantum routers. And that's effect- the intention we we have for them. Uh, so we do plan to build networks where we place these, what physicists call quantum repeaters, but are effectively quantum routers, which have more than two links, and they generate a short dist- they generate entangled pairs with their directly connected neighbors, and then perform entanglement swapping to achieve connectivity between two end hosts. Right. That's actually very interesting, because then you would have like an, an internet beneath the internet, which handles... The, the the entanglements right to uh, to distribute information to distribute this the, the the state of qubit so it's it sounds very interesting I would say and and you're saying that this is already apl- applied in in products is it so what's applied in products is no entanglement swapping does not exist in products yet uh, there is no commercially available product that can perform entanglement swapping because this is very challenging. Uh, what currently is available commercially is you can have uh, this short, this single link, basically this point-to-point link between two nodes, which can uh, do quantum key distribution. An important distinction is that these entanglement distribution protocols uh, do not necessarily generate entangled pairs of qubits, but can simply just transmit a qubit down the fiber. There's a small and subtle difference. Uh, but yeah. And so if I, if I look at the examples of quantum computing, I always see these uh, massive racks of uh, stacks of cooling stuff. So how, how do I fit that into my rack? Just a very practical question. Yes, that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, actually, I know of a QKD setup that we currently have uh, somewhere in the labs. And uh, the intention is to actually build these setups so that they actually fill, fit in server racks. Uh, so the entire cryostat and the entire uh, gear, the entire hardware, is built to fit inside server racks. Uh, so they want they yes, they're designed to fit inside these racks. Yeah, I think because well, we we didn't discuss that yet, but but to to establish the entanglement, you need something close to zero Kelvin, right? Uh, yes, I don't actually know the number, but it, it depends on the technology implementation. Uh, yes, some of them do involve uh, cryostats. And uh, so one of the particular setups, the cryostat uh, is necessary to keep, simply because the detectors that are most efficient for single photons, because that we to operate at the quantum level, you need single photons, uh, you need uh, cryogenically cooled detectors. But there's also other, it all, it all depends on the hardware platform you use, and there's different uses for uh, cryogenically cooling. And But yes, most of them do require cryogenic cooling down to Kelvin, single Kelvin temperatures. 
Something to change the conversation a little bit. At least um, we just you just mentioned that uh, QKD can be used for MacSec uh, at the physical layer or at, at, at the Ethernet layer or IPsec or. Um, but the other way around, a, a question that pops up a lot is: Is my IPsec VPN still safe um, now in the advent of uh, quantum computing? And because uh, the big uh, obviously. Um, worry is that at one point a quantum computer is able to crack uh, our security as we currently know it. Uh, yes. So this entirely depends on what what it, it's a question of essentially what data are you securing and how long do you want the data to be secure for. So if the data you're securing is meant to be secure for a really long time and the really long time here means decades, so potentially health information uh, especially, uh, of an actual person, uh, then you're actually already vulnerable to quantum attacks, simply because some, somebody can just capture the, the encrypted information, store it, and just wait for quantum computers to come and decrypt it then. Mm -hmm. Uh, of course, if your information is transient, then that's not particularly a concern to you right now. Uh, eventually, within 10 to 15 years, quantum computers that can crack RSA uh, or, or just our general PKI infrastructure very quickly will exist. And the real threat is not so much that uh, some research team or say Google or IBM will say, we have one now, because it, I don't think Google or IBM will be engaging in these kind of activities. But there will be also actors that we do not know about that do not publish their data, that do not publish what they have, who might achieve this sooner than everybody else. And we will not know that they're already using quantum computers to decrypt our information. Uh, so, we are, so depending on what data you're securing, you're at most secure for 10 to 15 years, probably. Mm. Although different estimates are come from different people. So do you foresee the use of, um, uh, we already touched on it a little bit, but the, the, there is obviously an ask for QKD implementations as there's companies developing uh, this in a commercial solution. But do you also foresee, for example, embedded QKD uh, OEM chips in networking equipment? Or what's your idea on... Uh, the future of, in this case specifically, uh, uh, quantum security. I so so this is a bit more difficult to answer because uh, I have been speaking to some people from uh, the telco industries, etc., and it's kind of difficult because a lot of it's very difficult to say what will what will be the case when even the end users don't really know what they know, need and want right now. So a lot of a lot of people who will need, a lot of companies that will need uh, quantum security, so let's say government, financial institutions, are only now starting to explore this subject. And even then, not all of them. So they're, they're currently in the stage of exploring what does it mean, how to integrate it into their systems. And only then will the, can this kind of question be passed on to a telco provider who might in the future provide to them quantum key distribution, quantum or expressed differently, quantum safe encryption as a service. Uh, and effectively, yes, I actually have heard some people say that it would be great if we could just slot it in into our existing gear and have it just work. 
Uh, the only thing a problem with that is that's technologically challenging, but it might happen in the future. And if we look further down the horizon and, and look at other applications, um, maybe beyond the just a key distribution, um, we've, we've briefly touched on repeaters being like router nodes or routing nodes in, in a network. So could you make a parallel to, let's say, MPLS, for example, that we use today, which also just exchanges labels and, and a label is only valid for a certain period in the network, maybe even a link only? Would that... Would that uh, as I know that most of our listeners will be very familiar with MPLS, is that something that you could say? Uh, yes. So uh, the so if when I so the way we see the network technology being deployed is uh, so eventually the end users will need some end user services uh, and we'll want to connect them with basically some kind of entanglement generation service. Uh, because, so as I've already explained, the way we generate entanglements is by creating these short-range pairs and then performing an entanglement swap. A natural uh, approach to solving this problem within the network is to use a connection-oriented approach. Because it doesn't really make sense to use a hop-by-hop forwarding mechanism if what we're doing is if we can generate all of these short-range entangled pairs at the same time. So within the network, we will need effectively virtual circuits for our quantum entanglement. So one way to achieve this is to basically use mechanisms that we know from MPLS. Uh, and that is that we establish a virtual circuit. Uh, we do it by means of distributing labels. And uh, we generate these short-range pairs. And these short-range pairs will be generated with a label assigned to them. Uh, and you and the, so therefore a router will receive or will receive entangled pairs on different links with different labels, and it itself will have some tables installed into it by the control plane that will tell it which entangled pairs with which labels should it swap to connect a particular to connect for this particular virtual circuit, which will hopefully result in an entangled pair between two specific end hosts. Very interesting. And is there like work needed to be done to uh, like in terms of protocols that we are used to in the network world? So just looking for ways for our maybe our listeners or other people that are interested in how they can add value to these research projects. Uh, yes. So currently, uh, a lot of the work that exists, especially in the repeater area, is very lab hardware based. Uh, because the physicists who build these equipment are well, are hardware people. They build the hardware. They show that they can generate entanglement. Um, that's kind of where the experiments stop. Uh, currently, especially in QTech, we're and in other uh, places as well. For example, QIRG, the IRTF. We we want to ask the question is like, what happens next? Well, we have this hardware that can generate this entanglement. We have this hardware that can also perform an entanglement swap. How do we actually build an infrastructure on top of that? Uh, and this is currently a very open question. Uh, all Very little exists in terms of practical proposals. A lot of them are very, very researchy, very academic. As an example, uh, they consider, as I read papers where they consider a large square network. Uh, so, uh, and basically each pair of nodes generates 
attempts to generate entanglement on their link, and then they randomly perform entanglement swaps and hope it results in a uh, connection. And, and you calculate statistics on that, and then you add some more ad hoc rules and you improve the performance. Other protocols can also be designed. And for example, I myself have been considering a more virtual circuit approach uh, rather than just randomly generating entangled pairs across the entire network. Uh, but it's still effectively an unexplored area. And currently, I say I worked on a protocol. We've, in QTech, we've proposed a protocol, and we're currently working on implementing that protocol on actual hardware as well. And we hope to have some demonstrations of this protocol running on real hardware within the next uh, few coming years. Uh, but there is space for more protocols because this is a very unexplored territory. Uh, and hopefully soon there will actually be hardware that will be able to verify the performance of these protocols. Interesting. Is that also what you are planning to run? Because uh, we haven't really touched on that yet. And it's something I think is really interesting also for our listeners to still quickly uh, go into before we uh, wrap it up. In the, uh, uh, in the network you are... Uh, currently uh, building in the Netherlands. Um, I know that you've run uh, some tests on campus um, uh, to create entanglement between two uh, locations, but you are also building a larger network, right, to, to st sort of start uh, the quantum internet. Uh, yes, so current the intention is to actually build an intercity network uh, in, in the Netherlands. Uh, there's currently work going underway to build the first intercity link between The Hague and Delft. That's roughly about 15 kilometers. Uh, ultimately, the idea is to also connect other cities in the Netherlands, such as Amsterdam and Rotterdam, to this network. Uh, and yeah, so, so our plan is to actually build over, especially within this decade, up to 2030, really focus on building an intercity quantum network. So uh, to close it off, can, can you give the listeners um, some suggestions and tips where, because uh, I can imagine there's a, a ton of more questions. Um, uh, what would you uh, suggest maybe for courses or can people join work in IRTF? Um, not everyone is, is that familiar with how IRTF, etc. works. So do you have some tips and tricks? Uh, yes. So my first tip is uh, for people who come from a, a networking background, uh, a non-quantum networking background, the Quantum Internet Research Group, that's part of the IRTF, is a great start because we really focus on making the material we present over there accessible to such an audience. And within there, there's currently an inter internet draft, which will hopefully result in an uh, RFC, uh, which is called Architectural Principles of the Quantum Internet, which is effectively just an introduction to quantum networking, uh, specifically for a networking engineer audience. Uh, and I think that's the best place to start to just get a very quick uh, introduction to the field. Uh, following that, there are Obviously, academic papers, but they tend to be very dense and very difficult to read. So the more courageous listeners could just try and look up the references from that draft or simply see the papers that QTech is publishing. 
Uh, so you can always find that uh, on qtech.nl. Uh, and I, th I think the best way is actually to through the QIRG at the IRTF because we really focus on being accessible over there. And also because it's a public mailing list, people can just sign up and for free, there, there's no barriers and just ask questions. And to participate is, and then basically over there, they have access to physicists and other researchers who know the subject. And if they have ideas or questions, they can then all interact and push the work forward. All right, sounds good. With that, I think we've come to the end of this uh, episode of the Routing Table podcast. Uh, thank you very much for your explanation. Um, I think there's a lot more we can discuss and, and there would definitely be room for a, a follow-up to go deeper into certain areas. Um, but thank you very much for being our guest today. Thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to, uh, to see the quantum internet uh, coming. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.